Keeping it real. A state. everyone and thank you guys so much for tuning back into keeping it real estate podcast today i have a special guest with me the cash flow king jimmy murray and he will be dropping so many gems on house hacking entrepreneurship wholesaling and investing so if you are interested i suggest that you stay tuned how you doing today I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. I can't complain. Just trying to stay safe and stay out the way. Absolutely. I hear that. I hear that. Um, yeah. I think I read in your email that you're down in Virginia. Is that right? Yes. Yes. I'm in Richmond, Virginia. Where are you at? I'm, I'm located out of Rhode Island. All right. So we can start just by you introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what you do. Definitely. So... Hey guys, Jimmy Murray here. I'm a millennial house hacker turned corporate dropout. I now own a property management company based out of Rhode Island in Southern Massachusetts, where we manage just under 600 doors. And I'm also co-host of the Cashflow Kings podcast. Awesome. Awesome. So, um, we're, have you ever recorded with Anchor before? No, this is my first time recording with Anchor. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited about the information that you have to share with me and my audience. Um, So I know that you're an entrepreneur um, and there is a daily grind that entrepreneurs have to do every single day. So tell us a little bit about the daily grind of entrepreneurship. What does that look like for you or any tips that you have for anyone listening? Absolutely. So I know a lot of folks in in today's environment, they typically have that corporate job, but they're always working to try to build that side hustle. And and that's where I was four years ago. So I was in corporate America working a large financial firm, and I started to build the side hustle. I thought it was going to be buying multifamily properties, which part of it was, and then get into mm-hmm. wholesaling. Wholesaling was going to lead me to financial freedom where I was my own boss. Following that that theme, um, I didn't make enough money in wholesaling in order to quit my corporate job, but I found out mm-hmm. that I was really good at talking to tired landlords from my wholesale uh, yellow letter marketing. With that, I ended up launching a property management company, and that's what led to my eventual ed- exit from corporate America. You know, Gary Vee always talks about how you have X amount of hours in the day. And once you leave your corporate job, go home, maybe catch a workout, eat dinner, and then you have till 2 a.m. to put right, in the work. Right. I would say you probably don't have to work till 2 a.m. But if you can set aside a solid hour or two, at least in the beginning, every single day, trying to work to build that side hustle, mm-hmm. it is incredible what that daily discipline will lead to. And that would be my biggest piece of advice for anybody looking to leave the corporate grind is putting that work every single day because those small daily improvements lead to massive long-term gains. Absolutely. And I know a lot of people, um, you know, when they're thinking about leaving corporate America, they're scared because they feel like they're leaving behind stability and benefits and, you know, paid time off and healthcare benefits and things like that. So, Um, that's another thing that I know, like a lot of people, 
have a hard time transitioning into entrepreneurship or don't want to transition because of those benefits that they're leaving behind in corporate America. Definitely. So kind of two thoughts that I have there. And one is, as you're in, if you're still in the corporate world and you're looking to build that side hustle, make sure that you're a good saver. Make sure that when you leave that corporate hustle, you have, you know, three to six months of saving in case things go sideways. I was fortunate. Um, I made really good money working for the company that I did. And then I also lived well below my means. So I was, I was able to save a year's worth of income before I quit. And that, that was definitely part of it that like helped me get to where I needed to be. Um, on the other side of that, I think success as an entrepreneur is almost like success in dieting. And, and this is probably kind of crazy <laughs> simile that I'll talk through, but they talk about how a successful diet is actually a live it. And it's the same thing as an entrepreneur. If you truly love what you do and you're truly passionate about what you do, that is where you're going to recognize the, the largest amount of success because it's natural, right? You're naturally living it every day and it's not as much of a grind. I mean, it's still work and you still get to kind of grind from that perspective, but it makes mm-hmm. it that much easier. I know that people are always nervous about when they quit, you know, whether even if they have the savings of how they're going to generate the income and get back to the level they were at before. Um, right. I will tell you that I'm fortunate that I was able to build a company where I'm above where I was at before my corporate job. But for the first couple of years, I absolutely wasn't, but I was a passionate about what I did. And I completely believe in uh, the law of the universe that if you put in the work every day and you kind of set that antenna, that's what the universe is going to attract to you. Absolutely. So I think that's, that's really important as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I also think that with entrepreneurship, like, having discipline and a disciplined schedule is also like one of those things that you have to adjust to. Cause you know, when you're leaving corporate America, you used to, you have to be here at 8 AM, you go to lunch at 12, you clock out at five and you just do it all over again. Versus when you're an yeah. entrepreneur, you know, you have the freedom. So you have to be disciplined to put yourself on a schedule and stick to a schedule and make yourself do the work versus having someone micromanage you. Yeah. So, so that's the good news, right? That time freedom is a benefit that most folks don't have in corporate. Absolutely. But when you go on your own, you're going to have the, what I think is like one of the best benefits of being an entrepreneur is that time freedom. And maybe not in the beginning, but if you grow your company and get to a level, you will achieve it. But time freedom is a double-edged sword because if you are not disciplined and don't set up that daily schedule, it's actually going to work to your detriment rather than your benefit. So I think that's a really good point that you made to have that daily discipline. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk a little bit about getting into deals with $0 out of pocket. Tell us more about that. Absolutely. So I have, I have two, what I think are, are fairly good stories related to this. Okay. In the beginning when I started wholesaling, so I bought my first four unit, didn't have a lot of capital, decided that wholesaling was the next step. I would go to my monthly real estate investors group, my RIA group, um, and I would share deals that I was coming across. And honestly, some weren't always under contract, but I always tried to bring a deal that was under contract that I was trying to wholesale. And uh, the very first deal that I brought to the investors group, I pitched it. And honestly, it was in a D neighborhood, but I had the property under contract for $22,000 which is like crazy. It was a four bedroom, two bath house in Rhode Island. Wow. Um, And this is just to give people perspective. This was back in um, 2013. So 
the market we weren't fully recovered from the financial crisis. Okay. Right. I pitched that deal at 30 th- for $30,000 in my local investors group and nobody took it. But I had a gentleman come up to me after the meeting and he said, "Hey, what would you think if we partnered? I gave you the money to buy it and we work together to rehab it and resell it." He's like, "I have $400,000 in cash and I want to be your private investor and, and this is what I'm looking to do." So I thought that was really cool. So that's right. how I got in- <laughs> So that's how I got into my first rehab with no money down. Honestly, it wasn't a great partnership. <laughs> okay. We we uh so we bought the property for twenty two thousand and sold it for a hundred sixty thousand a year and a half later and made zero dollars. <gasps> kind of crazy, right? Yeah. So when we went in, we were set up <clears throat> the way that we were set up. I, I'm trying to think back. It was either a seventy or eighty thousand dollar rehab. So we thought we had some good margin of the project. Mm-hmm. The guy who lent us the money. He, who was also a partner, he wanted to go forward with this contractor who he had a good feeling about. Day one, goes to start the rehab, cuts the guy a check for 30000 We never see the guy again. <gasps> wow. So immediately, wow. that's sunk cost in the project. And that's a very, we quickly learned how to appropriately screen a contractor, which is another conversation we can talk through. And it's going to be different state to state. But I am like crazy OCD in screening these contractors and making sure that they're legit and putting them on the proper payment plans that if they need cash up front, it's cash for materials. And then if, if they're kind of hand them out, then we can set up a payment plan that works for both of us to right. make to making sure the job gets completed and he doesn't disappear in the middle of the night after I cut him a fat check. Right. Wow. So that was the first one where I really didn't have any street cred. Street cred. I just had the deal. So I think in the real estate game, it's really a three-legged stool. You can either have the experience you can have the financing or you can have the deal. And I think that those are the three components. They're going to allow you to get into some type of partnership or to be able to execute a deal at a high level. Right. I, I agree with that. Do you, the did, sec- the, did the guy that lended you the money, did he, since he was working with you, because I know sometimes hard money lenders charge interest, a lot of interest, you know, on the money that they're lending to you. Did yeah. he, charge you guys a lot of interest or since he was working with you was he a little more lenient on that or how did that part work out yeah so he was lenient so okay. um he was he was a 50 percent partner in the llc but then we also wanted to set up so kind of the lending part was separate so the way that the lending was set up is that it was two points and ten percent Okay. But the two points was due at time of closing on the on the sale of the property. It wasn't due up front. So we rolled it into the principal of the loan, essentially. Oh, okay. And the 10% was also due at closing on the back end. So we didn't have monthly interest payments. So honestly, it was, I don't think casual is the right word, but that's what's coming to mind. It uh-huh. was a very relaxed payment structure because he was betting on us in order to get that return at the end. So when he, I I'm not one to point a finger, but when he chose the contract and the contractor disappeared and we lost the $30,000, it made me feel a little bit better that it was his choice and not something that I had pushed on him. Not that I ever want to see anyone lose that type of money. Right. But at least we bought the property correctly that at the end of the day, we didn't learn money, but we learned a hell of a lot on that first project. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that was a big lesson. (laughs) So um, just to add some perspective, when we bought that, it was like, a drug den like there were legitimately like needles in the garage it was really really crazy and when we first bought the property Mm -hmm. 
we didn't realize that the previous owner was actually renting out bedrooms to prostitutes uh, that wow. would walk up the street from the bar at the end of the street. So this was like for the first flip, there was so much stuff going on. And uh, we learned more than most folks learn on four or five flips. It was it was definitely crazy. Absolutely. So would you say that um, going the hard money lending route to do a deal with zero dollars out of pocket, would you say that's the best way to do a deal with zero dollars out of pocket or how do you feel about that? Yeah. So if, so my ideal purchase with zero dollars out of pocket would be subject to existing financing. So the way that that can work is if there's, and I would like to do that with a multifamily property. So say there's a three family property out there, you mail it, you get the lead, you start talking with the owner, you can take over their mortgage payments. So with subject to existing financing, you're going to take over their mortgage payments. You're going to handle all the tenants. You are going to get the deed to the property, but you still have to pay that mortgage. Now, if the mortgage company finds that the deed has been transferred and somebody else is paying it, there there is a, I can't remember the name of the clause off the top of my head, but they may, they may call the loan due immediately. But I would say, especially in this current environment that we're facing right now, facing COVID-19, um, as long as the banks are receiving payments, I don't think that that's going to be as much of an issue. Okay. The subject to existing financing is really going to set you up with no money down because it gets you into that cash flowing asset. Now your job is just to get the cash flow better. So you're able to cash that owner out. Or maybe you leave the subject to or, or the existing financing in place if the owner is okay with that. But that would be my ideal strategy with no money down. Figure out or find a deal that you can get subject to existing financing. That's a multifamily property. And that can be a great wealth generating tool for you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Um, Did you want to go into that second story about this or? Yeah, so I love this one. So I want to share like two sides of the spectrum. One with no experience and the gentleman with the $400,000 meeting me at the RIA meeting and like taking a huge bet on me to today. So in December, I was out with my partner having a drink and I got I received a direct message on Instagram and the kid said, Hey, I think I have a deal on the East side of Providence. And he gave me the details and I'm like, I don't know, but the market has appreciated. So in certain neighborhoods of Rhode Island, three families are now trading for um, 150000 a door or more in wow. like really sought after A neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a three or a three family could be trading for two hundred to 250000 a door, which from an investment perspective and someone who knows the local market, you aren't, you're not going to generate a great return. You're looking at a four or 5% cap rate, which isn't great, mm-hmm. but you are working with that A demographic class of tenant. So I didn't realize this when I went out to see the property that we were in one of those neighborhoods. So it was a, it was a deal for um, the wholesaler was offering it for two hundred ninety thousand. We put it on a contract when we started running the comps. We saw that um, there was a house that had sold up up the street two weeks before for five hundred and nine thousand, and it was a seventy thousand dollar rehab that we estimate estimated at purchase. So now I have this deal sitting in front of me. Um. I have access to private capital at this point and private private money is a little bit different than hard money, at least in my mind. I know that some folks go back and forth on that, but private money, I think there's more of a relationship based it, based on okay. it versus strictly asset-based lending. Um, so, so now I've got this great deal, $290,000 purchase, $70,000 rehab. 
with a $500,000 ARV, which we actually just put it in our contract uh, two days ago for 495000 So wow. our, our numbers work. We executed the rehab at 70 and put it in our contract at 495. So that was a great deal for us in this late stage of the cycle. But I had to find money before we could buy it. So I developed a relationship with an attorney. Mm -hmm. um, he was in a networking group that we were a part of, a part of and it had come to find out that we actually played played baseball back in the day for the same coach, even though he was like 15 years older than me. Mm -hmm. But um, I was able to develop the relationship. And on that deal, he lent us 100% of purchase and 100% of rehab dollars. Wow. On hard money. Now, the terms were 12 and 2, which aren't great, but aren't terrible. So now I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm going to have to bring the money to closing and we're going to have to find a way to pay the juice on a monthly basis. So on that $290,000 loan at 12%, you're paying $3,000 in interest every month. Those are heavy carrying costs, right? Mm -hmm. So I ended up bringing in another partner um, where we split the profit on the back end 50-50. He'd get paid any money that he laid out up front for the, for the interest payments, and then we'd split the profit 50-50 thereafter. Okay. So that was a way recently that I turned an Instagram DM into a fairly sizable profit where I used the hard money lender I developed a relationship with to get 100% mm -hmm. financing on purchase and on rehab, and then brought in a second partner within the LLC in order to um, take care of the monthly interest payments. So that would be another strategy that um, someone could lay out where right. kind of you structure it that way. And that makes me think about like the importance of networking and really building those relationships with people because since you've been doing it and you you know built relationships and had people that you could call on to help you work the deal out so that that's 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 really awesome that you were able to do that and you have those relationships in place to be able to do things like that it, but and it all goes back to exactly how we started this conversation it's the daily discipline of getting up every day and doing it. And people are going to recognize that. Right. Now, one thing I did want to ask about is wholesaling doesn't work out for a lot of people. Why do you think that wholesaling doesn't work out, you know, for some individuals? Or I know you say you used to do wholesaling, but you got out of that. What was your experience like? Why did you feel like you wanted to get out of wholesaling? I think I quit too soon, honestly. Okay. Um but beginning of 2015, um, this is when I had I had um, bought I bought a flip. I bought my second house hack. I launched a property management company, and I quickly realized I was a jack of all trades, trades and a master of none. And I said, "All right, I really got to focus here." So I'm a huge believer in the Pumpkin Plan. So the Pumpkin Plan is a book wrote by Michael Michaelitz. I can't pronounce his Polish last name. I apologize, but okay. if you Google the Pumpkin Plan, you'll be able to find it. And he talks about how the farmers who grow the thousand pound pumpkins that win the blue ribbons at the county fairs, they don't grow a whole pumpkin patch of a thousand pound pumpkins. They grow one. So they may, they might start off and plant a seed and then they're going to see which couple of pumpkins grow the fastest. They're going to cut off the other pumpkins and they're going to only focus on growing that one to be 1000 pounds. And that's what we have to focus on in business. So mm. I think a a lot of people start out and they're like, that's a good idea. Let me chase it. Another good idea. Let me chase it. Another good idea. Let me chase it. But if you can really stay focused and find your niche and grow that thousand pound pumpkin, 
grow that pumpkin and then find other avenues that kind of serve as a bolt on where you can add it into your core business, but you really need to stay focused on that core business. So I think why folks fail in wholesaling is they quit too soon. I think it probably takes a solid two to three years to grow a a sustainable wholesaling business. Mm -hmm. Now, full disclosure, I haven't done that. So I did it for about a year and a half. Um, while I was in corporate, I didn't follow up well. My CRM wasn't great, but I think if you can really build that core business, have a great CRM, have the right follow-up structure in place, and then just consistently mail every month, every week, whatever you choose, just keep it consistent and do it for two to three years. That's where you're going to grow that really solid wholesale business where, you know, you might've called somebody in your first three months and then two years later, it comes back. Because that's right. just kind of how it works. The key yeah. is in the follow-up. And it's really a sales-oriented role. Absolutely. Where I'm more of an introvert and I've kind of broken out of my shell. But mm-hmm. I think that's where I struggled as well. Yeah, so. same same thing with like being a real estate agent. Same thing. The CRM, the follow-up, constant contact, you know, making sure you're marketing. Just basically staying in contact and building those relationships like we said. Absolutely. But- that that um, when you spoke about the pumpkin plan and the building the pumpkin, growing the pumpkin to a thousand pounds, that like that even sent a light bulb light bulb off in my head because I'm young, I'm 25, so a lot of times when you're young, you still have a lot of ideas, you don't know exactly which one you want to stick to, and luckily Absolutely. I have been able to grow my real estate business, but I'm constantly thinking of other things like what can I do here, what can I do there. And when you said that, it kind of sent the light bulb off in my head because it's like, just focus on your business, focus on doing the best you can with this business and growing your business. And it'll probably be a lot more successful by the time I'm 30 versus if I'm trying to do six business plans now and I'm trying to split my energy between six different plans. Absolutely. And then, so to sort of piggyback on that pumpkin plan piece, because this is something that gets me really excited. Um, I love Andy Frisella. Andy Frisella is now on his second podcast. He's a little sharp. So um, just full disclosure, mm-hmm. I think he has an explicit podcast. But as an okay. entrepreneur, he's a, really, he's a real OG, at least in my mind. Andy talks about his power five. So every day, what are the five things that you have to do? And as long mm-hmm. as you get those five things done, it's a successful day. So that piggybacks on the pumpkin plan. Mm-hmm. And then also the daily discipline that we talked about. So if you guys listening can develop those five things that are really going to lead you to be successful and you execute on those every single day, that's what's going to get you. That's what's going to get you set up for success. Yes. I'm so excited about that. That just made made me excited. So I know it'll make my (laughs) listeners excited. I love that. Good stuff. (laughs) All right. So um, now how do you house hack your way to cash flow freedom? Yeah. So honestly, I'm a big believer in sometimes you got to be lucky to be good. So I graduated college. I always wanted to buy a multifamily. My aunt referred me to a realtor. And this is in 2010. So I don't know how good the real estate market is at this point. But there were, you know, B minus C plus neighborhoods where legitimately in Rhode Island, you could buy them. And they needed a little bit of rehab, but you could buy three families for fifty to sixty thousand dollars. Wow! Those buildings are now trading for two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand dollars. Just oh yeah, I'm sure. Crazy, crazy, right? So yeah. I don't realize how good I have it. I go out with this woman. I'm seeing a bunch of stuff, and 
<clears throat> she ends up, I find out like a few months later, she ends up buying like three or four of those multis she brought me out to that I told her I was interested in out from underneath me. So wow. <laughs> I end up, you know, squashing that, focusing on my corporate career and then getting the itch for real estate again. And I happened to meet a gentleman who's still a mentor of mine to this day. Mm-hmm. And he sent me a list. He said, hey, listen, we're going to look between Pawtucket, Rhode Island and Attleboro, Massachusetts. And that's, that's, he's like, that's where my focus is. I can get you into a good deal. And I think this is what's going to really set you up. He had this one property. It was, and it's still the ugliest property on Central Avenue in Pawtucket today. Maybe <laughs> one of the ugliest properties in Pawtucket. <laughs> and he's like, hey, listen, this is a short sale. It's been in the market a long time. Like, we need to get you. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I don't, I don't want to see this place. This is hideous. Like, mm-hmm. definitely not. Um, he was persistent in that four family ended up being the first property that I would buy in house hack. So the crazy thing is with this property is like when you buy your first one, you don't know what you don't know. I was so dramatically undereducated, but I was reading bigger pockets. I had a degree in finance. I knew what I was doing. I could get a mortgage. Oh yeah. Um, (laughs) Oh my God. Like what I know now, thinking back to when I bought that, what I didn't know, I, I honestly do not know how I was successful, but I was lucky. John continued to push to get me into that property to see it, and he started to teach me cash flow. I think that's really important. So <clears throat> for the listeners to gain perspective, it was a four-family property. Um, in order to get it up and running, I spent $10,000, and I used a Home Depot credit card. So I had good credit when I bought it, so that helped me in two capacities. One is the loan that I got, because I had above a 700 credit score, I did not have to pay private mortgage insurance. That saved me at the time about $150 a month, which is huge. Yeah. The second part is because I had good credit, I went to Home Depot, I opened up a credit account. I walked through the first unit that I had to turn over. I made a list of all the things that I needed, <clears throat> went to Home Depot, got it all together. It was at a price point where I could go into the bid room where Home Depot gave me another 10 to 15% discount and it's different across products. And then because I spent, I think it was either more than a thousand or $1,500 Home Depot gave me interest-free financing for 24 months. So what this allowed me to do is rehab these units. <clears throat> I had two vacant units when I bought it, rehab these units to get my cash flow up. So I didn't have to make any payments for 24 months. So as long as I could get my cash flow up in two years, I was in good shape. Mm-hmm. Fast forward three months, or sorry, four months after purchase, I lived in <clears throat> the smallest unit. And I think that's really important. Um, I, I think that good real estate investors are naturally cheap and frugal. It's just kind of like a part of our DNA. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so I lived in the smallest unit. And actually, one point later, one of the tenants made fun of me for it. Um, but yeah, I'm on the one laughing all the way to the bank now. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but I lived in that unit. I I reworked the lease on the, the next largest unit. It was another one bedroom. I removed the utilities from the lease and increased the rent by a hundred bucks. So that unit was renting for 500. And then there were two, three bedroom units above me. I ended up renting one at 975 and then the second one at uh, 900. So if we calculate the cash flow, I'm just under 2,500, actually right around 2,400. Mm-hmm. Four months in, in my mortgage payment, is $1,040 a month. Wow. So I know that this was a really long-winded way of getting to how do you set yourself up for financial freedom house hacking? And this is exactly it. 
because even if I were to factor in my monthly utility costs, that would be another two to three hundred dollars. So yeah. figure, I'm collecting gross rents of twenty four hundred. I've got a mortgage and utility costs that have me out of fourteen hundred, and I have that spread of about a thousand dollars. Now I'm not factoring in soft costs that all investors should include in their pro forma analysis, like vacancy and management fees mm -hmm. and capital expenditures. Those should definitely be factored in, mm -hmm. but on a net basis with those factors excluded, I'm cash flow positive $1,000 a month and getting paid to live in a four unit property. So oh, wow. that was like when this happened, it was probably by month five or six where I was like, holy cow, this is really cool. Right. And then, like the other thing that I want to like, I bought my first property when I was 23 years old. So I don't think that folks should be shy and say, I'm too young to do this or whatever else. Like you'll figure it out yeah. when you buy it. If you're willing to put in the hard work, you're going to be able to figure it out. And then the other big thing that ho holds a lot of folks back, because I, I got a couple of years on you, um, <clears throat> but student loans. Oh, when I, when I, I mean, when I was doing this, I had $70,000 in student loans and I was on a 10 year plan and my monthly payment on my student loans, is $817 a month. Wow. So I know like a lot of folks <clears throat> will will set limiting beliefs in their own head of I can't do this because of X or I can't do this because of Y. And honestly, if you just get out there and put in the work and you're willing to learn it and figure out how to get it done, you will get it done. Yeah. I I definitely relate to the <laughs> to the student <laughs> loan thing. <laughs> oh, it's it's tough. It honestly, I was fortunate that I had a good job where I was able to make my payments, but I mean Yeah. I it, it's not like I was driving around in, you know, brand new vehicles or, you know, going out every weekend. I I had to be extremely frugal in order to help me get set up on that that great financial footing. Yeah. So what what ways do you, or what rehab strategies do you use to leverage to that you've leveraged to attract tenants? Yeah. So honestly, upfront, <clears throat> what? <laughs> so this is a good one. I was gonna, I was gonna dive deep on something, but I'm gonna share this one. I okay. am so bougie about buying good paint. <laughs> like you have <laughs> know, to right? buy, <laughs> you have to buy good paint. So that that first house, <laughs> I went through 35 gallons of paint across three units. Because I went what? to Home Depot and I bought the cheapest paint. Now they were textured walls, and I wasn't using the right nap of the roller, and like it was just mm -hmm. a colossal screw up on my part. But what I learned after those first tenants moved out is that you know those dirty walls, I would go in and try and wash the walls. The paint's coming off because mm -hmm. it wasn't a good quality paint. So I I have a commercial account at at Sherwin Williams. I am a huge believer in buying their commercial paints. It is more expensive, but the finish on the walls and when the next tenant moves out, you're going to be able to, you know, <clears throat> either paint a spot, paint a wall or wash it. and It's going to be in really good shape. Mm -hmm. So that would be like my pro tip of it is worth it to buy better paint, whether it's, you know, Benjamin Moore or Sherwin Williams. Um, those would be my top go to paints. Uh, I This is not a paid advertisement for Sherwin Williams, but <laughs> I, I love the Sherwin Williams products. Okay. Getting back into rehab strategy, in in my local market, and I think this works across most markets, 80% of the rehab that you should be focusing on is going to be related to painting, flooring, and cleaning. And cleaning is probably like small 10% of that 80. But if you, could, in order to provide a rent-ready unit, we go through anytime 
that either I buy a property or we pick up one for an investor who, who has a distressed property, the first time we're going to go through and we're going to paint everything from ceilings to trim to doors to walls to get it in that high quality shape. And then we're going to focus on flooring. So if you can present <clears throat> a rent ready unit with clean flooring and nice, clean, freshly painted walls, that is going to help you attract the right tenants. And it is going to be more expensive upfront, but that's going to stabilize your cash flow for the long term. Right. Absolutely. Because when you like I'm thinking about when I take people to look at homes, they look at the paint, they look at the floors and then kitchens and bathrooms. Right. <laughs> that's what so, everyone that's, knows. So even though we didn't practice that, that was a great setup. <laughs> so um, first turnover is painting and flooring. And then if you have the capital that you want to upgrade the kitchen and the bathroom, some investors swear by they have to put in a brand new um, water efficient toilet. Like that's one of like some investors have to do that every time they buy something. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say when the toilet breaks, that's when I'll put it in. But um, after that first turnover, if you only have money for painting and flooring, do that. The next turnover, you want to upgrade the unit a little bit every time a, a tenant turns over. So whether that's like a new countertop in the kitchen, upgrading upgrading the hardware on the cabinets, going from white appliances to stainless steel appliances, always try to make the unit a little bit better. So then you can also chase those rent increases as well. So naturally you're gonna have inflation mm-hmm. where an eight hundred dollar right. unit today may be eight fifty or nine hundred two years from now. Mm-hmm. But if you can also start to add some of these smaller upgrades, maybe like a new vanity in the bathroom or like a nicer shower head, um, these small things may help you attract higher rents in the future just because you have better amenities. Right. That that definitely makes sense. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. So when you're when you're looking at a property before you've even started rehabbing it. What exactly are you looking for when you go into a property? Because, you know, you can look at the cosmetic thing. Some people can see past it. Some people can't see past it. But outside of cosmetics, what are you looking for when you step into a property that you're looking to buy? I'm going to throw you a curveball because this is outside of the rehab. My favorite properties to buy are multifamilies at under market rents. Okay. Because most of and I'll, I'll circle back to, to what I think you were leading me into on, the, on that last question. But mm-hmm. <clears throat> As real estate investors, when we buy a multifamily property, our purchase decision should be driven by net operating income. So how much is that building going to earn us? A lot of times in these properties that have under market rents, you can come in and increase the rents on these tenants to just below market, which is which is going to flow right down to the bottom line on your profit and loss statement. And mm-hmm. they're probably going to stay because moving is really expensive and they're going to be great they're going to be grateful that they have an opportunity to stay in the building. I mean, recently, like I picked up a multifamily, we increased the rent from 1200 to 1900 a month. It was in a really great neighborhood and well under rented. And the tenant said, Hey, listen, we went out to the market and we can't find anything under $2,200 a month. That's similar. Oh, like oh. we're so thankful that you were willing to enter into a, um, a one-year lease agreement with us at the 1900. So these tenants know that they're getting a good deal, but that is what, can turn a, an unprofitable multi into a profitable multi in a very short period of time. Okay. So let's, I'm going to circle back on your question now. Cause I, I thought that okay. was really important. I, I just love those multifamilies with under market rents. I think it's yeah. a really good position or a really good opportunity to buy things. When I go through any type of property, what I'm looking at first, cosmetics is always easy. Um, that's stuff that's 
fairly easy to price. It's going to be standard pricing once you're working with the right contractor, and you can figure that out. The tougher part, and where you should really pay attention, is to infrastructure. So infrastructure is going to drive your capital expenditure. Okay. That's going to be your roofs, your heating systems, your hot water tanks, your electrical system. I mean, we, we manage an eight-unit building where it had a 100-amp electrical service. I mean, mm -hmm. to put that into perspective, that's like a 4,000-square-foot house. They're all one-bedrooms running on 100 amps of electrical service, which they don't even install. Most new constructions, they'll install a 200-amp service on a single-family house, mm. just to put that into perspective. Yeah. So wow. um, I, particularly with all the electronics that tenants have now, like those are some of the things that are really important to look at. Um, so have a, a realtor that's educated to be able to coach you on these things, whether you're buying a single family to flip or you're buying a multifamily to hold or even a single family to live in. You want to pay attention to these types of items. Even if you need a home inspection, like ask the home inspector, they're going to be able to tell you if the, the electric coming into the building is proper for the building or how they'll be able to tell you within probably a five to 10 year range, how old the roof is, because that's mm -hmm. another huge expense. And then heating systems, because you don't want to buy that house with the old heating system and then you're in the middle of January and the heating system breaks where you have to put in a new one because that five, maybe that $5,000 boiler that you would have to put in is now a $7,000 boiler because all the plumbers in the area are busy because it's the middle of the winter. Um, so I, I think it's really important to pay attention to infrastructure and then also stay ahead of those capital expenditure projects um, in order to, try to get the best pricing as well. Okay. Sounds good. So now we're going to go into the 203K loan. So for those that don't know what the 203K loan is, could you just touch on that briefly and then talk about your 203K loan for a townhouse rehab? Absolutely. So the 203K loan is a product that allows you to finance the rehab. So I bought a four family in Lincoln, Rhode Island, and I use a 203K loan to complete a townhouse conversion project. So when I bought it, um, there were actually four one-bedroom units, and then there were eight rooms on the third floor. So I only converted half of the third floor, um, but it was completely vacant space. And I turned it into a two-bedroom, two-bath townhouse that was fully updated. And I was able to attract a premium market rent because those, those townhouse style units typically don't exist in that area. But I went to the bank and again, falling back on good credit and, and having strong reserves, but I was able to go to the bank and the 203K loan is still an FHA product. So for three and a half percent down, now the three and a half percent on a 203K product, when I did it, the down payment was also based on the additional 30,000 that I needed to complete the project. So it wasn't just on the um, $190,000 purchase price, it was three and a half percent on 220,000 just to provide folks perspective. Right, okay. Now, within that product, there there's a streamlined 203K, and I'm not a mortgage broker. So I would say reach out to your mortgage broker just to confirm this and, and prove that I'm not crazy. Okay. Uh, there's two products. There's a streamlined 203K. So for $35,000 or less, you can go with the streamlined. A project over $35,000, um, there is still a 203K product. And I believe that they're willing to lend on purchase price plus rehab up to 105% of appraised value. So if it's something you're going to live in, mm -hmm. they'll actually, they're actually willing to kind of overland on the project um, okay. in order to really get you to produce that house of your dreams. But I went with the streamlined product 
because it required <clears throat> obviously an appraisal up front at purchase, but then also an appraisal once the product was project was done and it had two draws. So when I closed on the house, I had a $15,000 check of the 30. So 50% of the 30 made out to myself and the contractor. So that goes to the contractor to kick off the project. When the contractor is done and somebody comes out and inspects it from your mortgage company, then the contractor will get the other 50%. So okay. one of the big things with that 203K product is finding a contractor who wants to wait for their money because it could take a couple of weeks to get somebody out there and then to get the check and then you have to sign the contractor has to sign it again. So um, work with a contractor who's familiar with it. Okay. On the, on the product that's outside of that streamlined product, um, you have multiple inspections and it can be multiple, multiple draws. It just increases the level of complexity. So... Um, it's up to the investor whether they find that valuable and they have a contractor that's willing to work within the, the realm of that 203K product. Okay. Um, but it can be a little bit challenging to find that contractor who's willing to work with you when you use that product. Okay, would you say that is one of like the challenges or cons of the 203K loan? Yeah, a lot. so a lot of contractors, they live hand to mouth, right? So either they don't have good reserves or they got to pay their guys every week um, it's just a little bit more challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, so some contractors, they may be willing to, excuse me, work with that two or three K product, but they may charge a little bit of a premium just because of some of the hurdles that they have to clear in terms of timing of payment. Okay. Got it. Okay. That was loads of information, but before you go, I do, I hear you have a story about a time that you almost walked away from a deal for a thousand dollars. So I definitely want to hear about that before you go. <laughs> so this is my first multifamily. So this is first four family in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. I bought it for $140,203. I still remember to this day because I just thought that, that the 203 was just completely random. Um, yeah. So uh, the cool thing is that was in <clears throat> November 2012 when I bought that. And... Now we're sitting in 2020, and that house actually just appraised for 330,000. And I've invested probably 20,000 into it, so I'm into it for about 160. It's worth 330, and that's per legitimate appraisal. That's not Jim Zillow math. That's like legitimate legitimate appraisal I just got for a refi. So, um, so I'm in a great spot, but it almost never happened. So the thing with a short sale is that short sales are not short, and they take a crazy amount of time. So exactly. as a new investor, buying an ugly house in a short sale, some like I wasn't well versed in cash flow, didn't really see the forest through the trees. We got through the inspection and the inspector said, hey, see this electrical line in that need like this house could burn down tomorrow. That needs to be replaced. So I went back to my agent. And I said, hey, based on the appraisal, let's go back to the to the sellers to see if they're willing to give us either $1,000 credit at closing or, or something in order to close on this property. And the seller said, no. And I told my agent, I'm like, that's it. I'm so tired of this project. I'm absolutely done. We had to wait you know, five or six months for the, for the bank to approve the short sale after the sellers agreed with us. And they're not willing to give me $1,000 when this, the building could burn down tomorrow. And the two realtors, because they had been involved in the deal for so long, they came together and they actually took $500 a piece out of their commissions and, and wow. cut me the check for $1,000. But legitimately, I almost wa- walked away from my start in real estate and a great deal 
over that tattered line in at the home inspection. And <laughs> I am so thankful that I did it. Right. Aren't you glad they made that work out? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Like, it just, like I said, the things that you don't know when you get into it. And Now, if it was like over $1,000, I'd be like, yeah, I'm still buying it. Right. Right. Like, Right. People would sell their left arm for that deal today. Um, if you would have known that it was going to set you up for cash flow freedom, you would have been like, you know absolutely. what? I'll just do it, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that is awesome. That is awesome. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on? Honestly, so um, I hope the folks like the stories that I shared, um, but I think that those are really good stories to share kind of my perspective and my approach to real estate investing. Um, I would just say, like, don't be scared. Go out and chase it. There's a wealth of free information out there. Mentors that'll absolutely help you out in your local market free of charge in order to help you guys set yourselves up for success and financial freedom. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jim. It was such a pleasure speaking with you and being able to create this podcast for my audience. I'm sure they're definitely going to love this one. Um, tell them what platform they can find you on and your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the best place to find me is on Instagram. And my handle is the notorious CFK. <clears throat> and then my podcast is called the cashflow Kings. We're on iTunes, Spotify, and Google play. Awesome guys. So make sure you check him out on Instagram and check out his podcast. And thank you so much again, Jim, for, tuning in and speaking with my audience about all these good things that you spoke about today. So I really do appreciate your time and your knowledge. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really hope that you enjoy the conversation between Jimmy and I. I definitely did. Some light bulbs went off in my head and I got so many gems from him. So I hope this was beneficial to you guys. And I hope you guys stay tuned for the next episode. As always, if you have any questions, comments or concerns, please feel free to reach out to me. My Instagram and Facebook is Adrea the agent. And my email is Adrea the agent at gmail.com. So until next time, you guys, bye.